0: Hey folks, and welcome to episode 206 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts interviewing a very special guest, Dr. David Field. If you've been around our website in the last few weeks, you'll know that Dr. Field started a new conversation series on our website on paths to maturity. This interview will touch on several themes from that piece, and I'll also leave a link to the entire series down in the show notes for you. One quick note before we launch in, Dr. Field did have connection issues during this interview, so there are some audio issues. there's some muffled vocals and echoing, and we do apologize for that. With that, we hope that you enjoy this episode, and as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: This is a special edition of The Theopolis Podcast. Today I'm joined by Alistair Roberts, who is a regular here on the podcast, uh, discussing at one time lectionary readings. We are in the midst of a series on the Song of Songs and we're going on to other topics once the Song of Songs series ends, but Alistair is here with me. But I also have David Field with me. Uh, David is an old friend. Uh, I've been reminiscing recently, David, about our first encounter with each other. Uh, I had just gotten to Cambridge and I got your name back in 1995, I'd gotten your name from Jim Jordan. Apparently, you were on his mailing list. And I wrote a note. This was when uh, we used, still used snail mail predominantly. And I think I got a call from you the following day, uh, which impressed me, probably I was most impressed initially by the, uh, the uh, efficiency of the British postal system. But uh, also impressed by your uh, quickness to give me a call and your eagerness to talk. You came up to Cambridge very shortly after that and we got together and then uh, got together occasionally in Cambridge, have seen each other periodically since. But uh, uh, David Field is here to talk about the topic that he was going to teach a course on for us in March, Pathways to Human Maturity. As it turns out, he's not going to be teaching that course this March. We hope to have him back in our next cycle of classes to teach this, this same material. Uh, but um, he's, been, he's had to bow out for this particular time. But uh, since it was a live topic, we've had some web essays about it, uh, and we've been in touch with David. It would seem like a good time to uh, get a teaser. Uh, if this teaser works, then it'll be, leave people hungering and thirsting for an entire year for more of the same. So uh, welcome, David Field. Thank you for joining us, and uh, it's, it's great to connect with you. I guess the first thing I want to do, David, is to uh, have you introduce yourself a little bit. I I gave you a brief introduction, at least of my connection with you, but uh, why don't you tell uh, the audience who probably doesn't know you a little bit about yourself and your background, your schooling. I understand that you attended a university in a town that begins with an O, the name escapes me. I know you did your PhD at Cambridge, but I I can't remember the name of the other institution that you attended. (laughs)
2: Peter, it's it's great to have a chance to speak with you and Alistair uh, on these important matters. With regard to my own background, you're right. My first degree was in here in Oxford, which is where my wife Sue and I now live uh, once more. And after spending time in Oxford, I then had three years in Nigeria teaching in a Bible college before my PhD at Cambridge in the thought of John Howe, a 17th century Puritan. That took me to 91, and then between 91 and now... I've spent a couple of spells in business, working particularly in executive search in global higher education. I was a pastor of a church, an evangelical church, south of London for a few years, and then I've also taught for nine years in a seminary in North London. That uh, series of forms of service came to an end a couple of years ago, and I've set myself now a period of two, three, four years to explore the possibility of and prepare for some sort of counselling ministry, and that's taken the form so far of working in a dementia unit, of uh, undertaking a course of study in psychodynamic counselling, with a further uh, formal study and training course ahead of me, and then also spending a fair bit of time reading further and thinking more about various practices and perspectives that play into Christian counseling and discipleship.
1: Could could I uh, throw your mind back to um, many years ago uh, John Howell was the subject of your dissertation. Why uh, was he worth studying did you think?
2: The prosaic answer is because it was it represented a path less trodden. But much more importantly for me personally as I got to know how much better over the three years or so of my PhD, I came to have an enormous respect for his Catholicity, his irenicism, his commitment at one and the same time to gather all that he could from the tradition of the Church in its many strands, but also as a Puritan, as you would expect, to be rigorously biblical in every way. And so by the time I'd I'd, uh, lived with him for three years, always having as my criterion in expounding his thought, uh, the knowledge that one day I might have to give account not only to the living God, but to John Howe himself. John, I said, you thought this. Uh, because of this influence or that influence, or well, you said that and it didn't quite tell you this other thing you said. Um, is that all right? Uh, so I had that criterion in my mind at all times, So by the time I'd spent two or four years, uh, closely in his company, then I, I really had some to a set of convictions about what these days we might call, um, a non or an anti-tribalism. Uh, he was he suffered a lot for his catholicity, um, and yet he lived a as far as you can tell at this distance and from his writings and what other people said about them, he lived a life of uh, Christ-like holiness, compassion, breadth of love, and commitment to scripture.
1: Was he connected to Oxford, or uh, was he a pastor? What was his uh, vocation?
2: He studied at Cambridge. He was a chaplain to Oliver Cromwell for a couple of years in the mid-1650s. Uh, he was then a minister within the uh, sort of established church, which is the 1650s, and in 1662, uh, or oh, actually a little bit before um, St. Bartholomew's in 1662, Um, he was ejected from the Church of England, and the reasons that he could not conform were a combination of his refusal to accept reordination. He said to John Wilkins, the Bishop of Chester, uh, on asked why he couldn't just submit the reordination, um, what hurt could there be in it? He said, it hurts my understanding. A thing cannot have two beginnings. Um, But his second reason for not conforming was that he believed that the uh, the 1662 requirements meant that there would be uh, folk um, excluded from the Church of England and therefore from lawful receipt of the Lord's Supper um, on grounds which Christ would not apply to them and exclude them from glory. And he said therefore the Catholic thing. It's not sectarian to conform. It's actually Catholic not conform.
1: Yeah, and I should have known he came from Cambridge because um, this is one of the first things I learned. With regard to the Puritans, Cambridge grew them, Oxford slew them. Well, you'd, you mentioned your current interest in um, you're taking a course in psychodynamic counseling. One of the things I'm curious about is what led to that particular direction. I mean, you were trained in theology, you taught theology. Uh, why not go through to a, what would be a more uh, classic kind of Christian counseling pathway Uh, rather than this Freudian-based system that that you're currently studying.
2: Yes. It arises really from a combination of my own frustration and curiosity, on the one hand, and my sense that for all the wonderful advances that have been in Christian counseling over these last decades, we may still not have integrated as fully as we might some of the scriptural strands about how deep down and far back our uh, problems and disobediences and distortions go with the way that we deal with uh, presenting issues in the, from the pulpit and in the Bible study and in the counselling room. So I'm going to be perhaps a little bit unfair in caricaturing but at times it feels to me as though some, Christian, as we all know, some Christian counselling in effect has just um, capitulated and is um, uh, secular counselling with a little bit of Christian vocabulary, I, um, and to my mind you're just asking for trouble if you go that way. But even some of the Christian counselling which is most committed to being scriptural at times appears to me still to be overly cognitive. But what we've got, obviously, in Scripture is Paul, for example, uh, don't you know this, and don't you know that, Um, and uh, even though, again, this too is a bit of an oversimplification, nevertheless, the structure of some of Paul's letters we do have the exposition of the gospel and the application of the gospel. There is something of that shape uh, to a Galatians or an Ephesians, for example. However, what you don't get in Paul is the idea that as long as somebody entertains the correct propositions, all will naturally fall into place. Now, of course, I'm not saying that there is a Christian counselling school that would... uh, Um, assert that either. My mild anxiety though is that although a given human being in his or her sadness, confusion, disobedience, maladaptation to life will have any number of causal levels in play ranging from they're not sleeping well to they're abusing substances They don't sing, they're not serving, they're not enjoying Christian friendship, all sorts of things that might be going on. They're not receiving the Lord's Supper. All sorts of things might be going on, as well as uh, the way they think about themselves and life and the gospel uh, being distorted or inadequate. So putting those things together Um, None of us want to be behaviorist, just tinkering about at the surface and making sure that um, the outwardly things are okay. None of us really want to be cognitive behaviorist. We assume that if we can get the thinking straight, everything else will follow. We want to be more holistic than that and take into account uh, a person's um, very early life, a person's significant emotional events, a person's key relationships, the way they carry uh, some global uh, beliefs is the wrong word, probably global orientations into the world, dispositions uh, into the world, which were laid down perhaps even before um, a time they can recall. All of these things play into the problems that we carry around with us. And I suppose to pick up the Freud reference, Freud's own conviction is that it is the unconscious mental processes and contents which account for, which in his uh, um, uh, Metaphor he often uses, the idea of uh, of subsurface, sometimes icebergs, sometimes caves under the ground, Um, but things which are um, not visible to us and yet enormously influential upon us. And I believe there's biblical warrant for saying that uh, that's an accurate way of thinking and one which has yet to be taken as fully into account in rigorously biblical counseling rather than the capitulated um, uh, Christianized organism, as it might have been.
1: Can can you uh, give me some of that biblical defense? What would you say uh, where would you go to make a case that that's the picture that Freud is giving of um, 10% on the surface, 90% submerged that that's a, that's a biblical portrait of our psychology.
2: Yes, I um, hesitate to claim the percentages, but when we speak about the human heart, that it's out of the heart that all sorts of things come, the heart which must be guarded, and yet the heart which is deceitful, so that there's, there are things going on at the very deepest depth which actually are only known to God or well, the Lord Jesus knew what was in a person uh, the spirit knows what's in the depth both of the spirit of God and the spirit of the human but we are self deceivers about those things and then when you play in I suppose well, obviously one of Freud's most key interests was in The dream life of a human being. And what you've got in dreams, clearly there's any number of theories as to why we dream. But never mind as to uh, which of those may be in the lead at the moment. The fact is that in our dreams we have mental processes and content which appears to us uh, to be almost involuntary. And yet, which comes from somewhere, and then the classics of the Freudian flip as well I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that scripture is full of Freudian flip, but once again, um, the idea that there's a lot under the surface that we bring to a given situation more more scripturally um as well as the material on the heart, then I'd want to say that the whole idea of original sin, the whole business of us being part of a story which was started by others, and where the lines of that story have been laid down already, that that's true of the race, and it's true true of the human race, it's true of the people of Israel, it's true of a given individual as well that um, we were there in one sense in Adam, uh, but not as a uh, fully conscious, morally responsible um, executive agent uh, there in the garden. And we inherit that, much of it, out of our understanding, out of our consciousness. And yet what we've inherited then shapes the way we love our lives Uh, very powerfully indeed. If you carry on that line, then you would say, and of course what did go on in the garden was uh, the breakdown of a relationship with an extremely young human being and uh, his father. Um, And that breakdown then impacted everything that followed. Well, since God As father um, is the one from whom all fatherhood um, comes or is named or is patterned it would be astonishing if our own relationships with our fathers and indeed our mothers uh, weren't very impactful upon the person and the set of dispositions that we take into life.
1: I can imagine somebody Uh, granting the point that there are um, unplumbable depths in our souls and our hearts. the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? But then, you've emphasized in in your introduction and also in the things you've written for our website that you're interested uh, in uh, certain practices that come out of psychoanalysis. You you talk about uh, some practices of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and some practices of the Desert Fathers. So it's, it's not just that somebody, I can imagine somebody saying, granted, uh, we have hearts that we can't understand, um, but the techniques that Freud used to exhume that are not, th- those are not sound uh, and grounded in scripture. Um, but you seem to be emphasizing the practice, not just the, not just the portrait of the psyche, but also the practices as being valuable for Christian counseling.
2: Yes, I would. And for this reason, that uh, at a level of generality, a high level of generality, then the common features of those three, as we call them, pathways in inverted commas to human maturity, psychoanalysis, and then uh, meditation and mindfulness, and the Desert fathers. what's common across those is a recognition that we need to slow down these still burn down the volume of uh, mental chatter or the noise of possessions, go deeper, go further back, and do all of that, ideally, not only with a real consciousness of being in the presence of God, but often aided by a, a present other person. If you came at it from the other direction, you'd say, here am I, I'm pursuing Christ's likeness. And I find in myself, a, a, any number of things, you know, I find in myself um anger and pride and deceit and envy. And, and then I long to see those things. Belted. Every Lord's Day, I get on my knees and I confess those things. And I hear God's word, and it paints for me a picture of the Lord Jesus, whom I'm called to be conformed to. Uh, and I ask myself, where did it come from? I try and I try, and it, I'm a mystery to myself. I don't, I don't mind one moment whether um, your reading of Romans 7 is about an individual believer, never mind that, um, at least Romans 7 gives the individual believer some, some words to use in his or her sense of frustration and it. Why is it? The truth is meant to lead to godliness. I've just said the Apostles' Creed. I believe the gospel. Where's the godliness? And so as I look at my own life and say, I want to be like the Lord Jesus, where does that anger come from? Now, if I just rush into... My busy responsibility made life. Nice. life. I'm actually unlikely to trace it much uh, anywhere near the root. It's a, it's a very common analogy that's used. But if you think of weeding, um, then here's the weed of, I'm call it bad temper or something, in my life. And it's tangled up with other weeds as well. If I'm going to deal with that properly, I'm going to have to deal with it patiently gently, slowly there'll be some things on the surface which look as if they're one but actually their roots are far apart. There are other things which look as if they're far apart but actually their roots are one. Um, and I'm going to have to be very careful and slow and gentle and patient as I trace that down. But if I'm serious about dealing with these surface things and mid-level things, then I'm going to have to deal with the depth of the roots
3: certainly seems to be a theme within Christian history that a deep study of the things of God leads you deeper into the exploration of yourself and the mystery of the human soul. I mean, Augustine talks about becoming a question to himself. Now, you've talked within your article about the value of turning to people like the Desert Fathers, depth psychology, and Zen Buddhism but a number of other people have made this particular turn. Um, what do you see to be some of the dangers in the ways that people have appropriated the thought of um, these various sources? And how do you think that your work um, avoids or seeks to navigate th- those dangers? Really important question. I go to slightly the it. Along these lines, in the web
2: article that we had and there was some doing a growing and a conversation, uh Doug in shorthand for that place we all love to go, we're talking about the Egyptian gold choice. I like that a lot. Plundering the Egyptians. And the way I want to avoid your question, Alistair, is this. But in order to take that goal The Hebrews were not required to understand the cultural background of those who had uh, produced the gold. They didn't need to analyse the false religion of those who possessed the gold. There was no detente, there was no staying behind, there was no co-construction, it was just slumber. And so if we look at psychoanalysis and see a patient, supportive unhurried listman the presence of a mother which actually leads to a self-understanding not for its own sake but in order uh, to pursue Christ's life or if we look at the Desert Fathers and we see a self-relinquishment and a depth of um, analysis of the passions or drivers of the sinful human or if we look at Then Buddhism, and we see a stillness, um, a connection between body and mind or spirit, which itself brings about an appropriate disillusion or disenchantment with false self. Then, though it's a very important thing that some people should unpack the history of ideas and the network of Um, thought of psychoanalysis or the religious or psychological or philosophical um, matrix out of which then practices flow or what's uh, good and bad, faithful and unfaithful about the practices of the Desert Fathers my assertion would be there is a way of nabbing some of their goals which is entirely fitting but which doesn't require that in-depth deconstruction of the entire systems.
3: You've talked about psychology, but two of the examples that you highlight, particularly Zen Buddhism and the practice of the desert fathers, are what many people would call spiritualities. And I mean, particularly in the work of a group like Theopolis, we're concerned with Spirituality, we're concerned with an appropriate biblical relationship to God, dealing with the soul. Um, How do we understand that relationship between psychology and spirituality? And when you're looking at something like Buddhism or the Desert Fathers, to what extent are you approaching them as something that's to be reduced to a psychological system? Or are you appropriating them as? spiritualities as well, how do those fit into the broader constellation of established spiritual practices of the Church? Once again, from one point of view, all I'm doing is assuming,
2: I guess, very conventional uh, Christian understanding of how a human being operates, both in respect of uh, the boundaries of their own self, and in respect of their subjectively experienced relationship with God, and so I want to stay on Christian soil, even as in territory, even as uh, take a look at um, what might be called Buddhist spirituality. I do find it very difficult to draw clear territorial boundaries between psychology and spirituality. I'm tempted to say that. You know, psychology is the endeavor to understand and indeed aid human beings in terms of the thing in front of them, without reference to a God dimension. But the moment you've done that, you've departed from reality, because the thing in front of you, the human being in front of you, is one who is, um, to whom God is closer than they are themselves, uh, one who is living every moment of their day and life uh, in the presence of God, Whether they're happy about that or unhappy about that, whether they deny it or don't deny it, that is the fact of the matter. So I think of something like a Buddhist spirituality. And on the one hand, you could think of that in in respect of their doctrine of no self, or uh, suffering is everywhere, or impermanence is... Um, a permanent feature of the universe. Uh you could talk about attachment and aversion and greed and eight paths and four trees and all the rest of it. Um, and that that's an entirely uh, uh, important and legitimate set of study. You could talk about uh Buddhism as a, a way of living uh as well. You could go to Buddhism and say when you endeavour to help people to the way of living that you think reflects the reality of your religious, psychological, or philosophical system. What means do you use? And if the answer there is, well, amongst other things, the means we use are physical immobility and silence. Attention to the breath in order to maximise present-moment awareness and self-remembering. We want to be people who are awake rather than asleep, who are living organisms rather than robots. Then we take that physical immobility, we take that attention to the breath, um, and we bring it away with us, we plunder that gold, and we say, now let's put this under a scriptural microscope where scriptural includes some sort of in a sense uh practice and we say, have we been missing anything?
1: So if I can uh summarize the last couple of points you've made, David, you're you're trying to nab the gold. Your project doesn't involve uh figuring out where it came from, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, background it has or but you're trying to you're trying to nab what you can what you can what you can find useful um, at some point that you you're recognizing that it will need to be purified may need to be purified um, i'm i think you' I think you've made that point you've talked about that in terms of Freud uh, psychoanalysis and in terms of Buddhism what is it particularly in the desert fathers that what's
2: the goal that you're trying to nab there now I feel slightly more on home. Territory. Because even though the Desert Fathers may have done some very odd things, nevertheless, their motivation and their map were so clearly the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And so the thing that I'm endeavouring to uh, understand and benefit from in the Desert Fathers is their attention to the self-renunciation the self relinquishment of Christ so that I think I put in, in the first web article some reference to Philippians 2 that if, if uh, the son is willing to uh, not cling on to equality with God to let go um, let go of status become a servant But in his earthly life, he he didn't have many possessions at all, as far as we can tell. I don't know that he had any books, and yet he is perfect. He didn't, as far as we know, have um, wife or children. When he had crowds following him, he was willing to let them go. There were times when, for five weeks and more, he let go of food. Night after night, he would let go of sleep. He didn't mind whether people called him a drunkard or demon-possessed if they lied about him. He let go of his right to justice, and then he let go of his life. And the Desert Fathers are saying, that's uh, only one portion of what we need to say about the Lord Jesus. He's not merely an example, he's redeemer. He's um, not only a, a model, he is our saviour. However, his call to discipleship is one to poverty of spirit, to becoming like little children. Uh, he calls us to say no to self, to crucify self, to lose, be willing to lose love in itself, to renounce everything we have, to have such a relationship with God as our other relationships by comparison seem like hatred. Um, and that's exactly what you do see in in a call of Philippians 3 where he says I had various um, connections I had status, and I had um, relationships and I had commitments and you know what, I've let go of all of those things, but I count them as rubbish um, and so what I see in the Desert Barberies is that far-going endeavour to say our problem is our self sort of capital S Self, and really we need to let go of that to be conformed to Christ. And one particular angle on that, uh, which does play into um, the more modern psychology, is the idea of identification. Where I I draw a boundary, and that is my Self, and then if I'm not careful, I just keep extending that boundary by identification. And I say, this possession, in a, in a sense, it's part of me. So if I go into the street and I see somebody else's car scratch, I don't mind much, I see my car scratched, somehow something happens in my stomach. It's because it's, I've identified with it. Or so I identify with my, my status. So I, I, even identify with my birthday. You know, if somebody says, all people born on the 13th of August are morons. I don't actually care. But if somebody says, all people born on the 28th of April are morons, I do care. If something happens, inside me when I say that. <laughs> I've got all these like, identifications, and they're, they're a sort of whole self, um, and they have to be let go of. And one of the things about the Desert fathers is they're winning. They're, they're utter resistance to reputation of any sort. It's not to say there aren't true identifications. You know, the Lord Jesus... Says so very clearly that uh, if somebody hurts uh, one of his disciples, they're hurting him. So there are true identifications, too. But um, the Desert Fathers, in their following Christ in self relinquishment, are a wonderful challenge to us, I think.
3: You haven't said a great deal about the church yet, and the Desert Fathers, in some ways, would seem to be a movement that stands in something of an uneasy relationship with the church. What are some of the church practices that you see really supporting this way of approaching the self? Um, what are some of the practices that already exist in Christian communities that we could emphasize more? What are some of the new practices that we could take on? Um, who are some people that we could learn from?
2: I suppose one thing to say is to uh, um, qualify the question, simply that when we do have all um, of uh, in these practices, then it's not as though there's not some um, parallel uh, in scripture for that. But one of the questions I ask myself is: When the Lord Jesus was fasting forty days, um, did He pop along to the synagogue each Sabbath, um, or did Jesus absent himself from the synagogue for five or six days? And when Jesus was walking with His disciples along the road, and at the end of the day. He went in front of them and he had to say, what were you talking about on the way? And then people would get up in the morning and say, where's Jesus? And he'd gone off uh, praying by himself. And then he'd go and spend the whole night um, uh, by himself in prayer. I sometimes thought to myself, if somebody behaved like that in our churches these days, when we were on a mission, somebody walked out in front of everybody. Uh, Or... They, um, they didn't come to the prayer meetings or something like that. What would we say about them? Uh, but these, the, the Moses up the mountain, or the Jesus in the desert, or indeed—I mean—to to go even further with, with this idea—the very fact that um, in, uh, Christian practice, private devotion, personal devotion um, is a central part of how we—central part of how we grow. Um, then you don't want to set these things over against each other too much. That said, I really believe that some of the type of listening in psychoanalysis which facilitates the radical self-examination at the service of pursuing likeness is a ministry of the Word. It's a particular form of Christian company, and it is a ministry of the Word. And I think as well that... Uh, even in the liturgy, the, the opportunity, well, in, in some church practices, but uh, the opportunity for the pause. One example, I think I might have put this in the web article too, is that when we say the 63 words of the English Lord's Prayer at the conventional pace, it takes about 40 seconds in a congregation. If we were to pause at the end of each of the 12 clauses for a few seconds, then those those pauses uh, they ease into and over the words. The character of the words themselves change. One of the one of the fundamental commands of scripture is to listen. But in order to listen, normally we have to be quiet ourselves. And so the silence uh, that we can't talk very much about, but which I an important part of all this. That, that silence is it's not a let's be silent um in case in the silence God says something which he hasn't previously said. It God has spoken to us, let's be silent and let it sing in and do its work. And I think um, even the way that we order our congregational worship, very small things, the pause here and there, can make a bit different to the way in which we encounter uh, the word. Similarly, when it comes to the cultivation of attention and to self-remembering, these things are extremely close to you know, Brother Lawrence's practice of the presence of God or to what Roman Catholics might call recollection. In other words, instead of walking through life um, on automatic or as robots, actually asleep to who we are and where we are, uh, we follow the hero Jim Elliot. He says, wherever you are, be all there. Be aware, moment by moment, that you're in the presence of God. And uh, again, I know we've not got much time, but the, the mindfulness dimension of Zen, where Zen is not simply the stillness which changes our awareness, but it's then an awareness which we bring into life. Again, not, not the system, not the religion, not the psychology, just the fact. But that mindfulness, which we know is all of age, the rage and sells a million books a, a day, that mindfulness, actually particularly in Scripture. But to, to be mindful when I'm eating a meal is to be truly appreciative of this gift from God. Or to be mindful in a conversation is to actually love the other person. But to be mindful for the job I'm doing at the moment is to put all my energy into it, you know, uh, whilst well, I'm very grateful or in an ecclesiastic, the non-energetic way. And so I think a lot of these things, whether it's the practice of the of God, recollection, the ministry of the Word... Christian fellowship, uh, patient listening, patient pastoral listening, silence in the liturgy, a lot of these things are, um, they're there. They're there in scripture, they're there in the church, and yet somehow or other, in my own case, it's taken attention to these other movements to wake me up to both their presence and their importance.
1: Uh, let me let me ask a final question, David, and uh, we'll we'll bring this to a close. Uh, I'm trying to envision what I guess at two levels. One, what this combination of things might look like within a I don't know if I want to say a, a theory of counseling or just a coherent practice of counseling. How do they fit together? Are you thinking that they're fitting together into a a larger framework, or are you being much more eclectic and saying? here's something that works for these people, here's something that might work for these people. It's, uh, it's, it's somewhat experimental. And I guess the, the, the other side of that is kind of in the, in the actual conduct of, of counseling. What does that look like? Does it look more like a, a session of psychoanalysis or does it look like prayer, common prayer with a, with a counselee? Uh, does it does it look like silence in in the presence of a counselee? What what's actually going on when you're counselling with these things in the in the background?
2: Graham, thank you. Uh, I do think there is an eclecticism to it, and yet they, the the three that we've been talking about remind us of three slightly distinct um, emphases. That is to say, the self relinquishment. that we've talked about with the Desert Fathers, that's simply of the essence of discipleship. The stillness and the self-remembering, self-awareness and the present moment awareness of them is uh, a 3D, all-colour life in the presence of God. That too is of the essence of discipleship. And the radical self-determination which is possible when we take time and are serious about seeing where the distortions and sins and adaptations come from, uh, that psychoanalysis would remind us of. That, in one sense, also is of the essence of Christian discipleship, although because normally we would apply it for those presenting issues that are um, beyond the ordinary struggles then perhaps we'd want to emphasize first of all the light it sheds upon counselling. And so to, to that other part of your question, I think the answer really is all of the above. That is, does it look like a psychoanalytic session where the, uh, the analyst says very little um, and where uh, a good listener helps us overhear ourselves and say so the, the client the the um is they're being more honest and more emotionally engaged and less hurried than uh ever they've been before in trying to work out what's going on. So part of it is a very quiet analyst uh and a disciple just mulling things over in front of a present, caring, accepting uh brother or sister. I do think it's prayer as well. One of my other heroes is honestly in the person and he said along the lines of and earlier on, I it, The more communion there is between God and us, the more secret things God will discover for us. And the more will we again disclose to God. And that is prayer. But it's prayer in this case uh, with another believer. And yes, I do think that uh, silence is part of that. Again, silence not as a qualitatively distinct Phenomenon which brings its own unique uh, blessing to it But silence as um, a form uh, or a, it's almost adverbial, uh, um, silence as the unhurried. Silence is just slowing down and turning down the volume of the mental chatter and the busy violence. And the, uh, the Christian counselor normally only has three sessions, and those types of things. So I
1: think silence, yes, there. yes, uh, a thorough discussion, yes, all of you are Well, uh, uh, we're, uh, we're out of time. David, thank you very much for uh, coming to join us on the Theopolis podcast. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. I think, um, probably speaking for Alistair, too, that it, it raises, raises many questions. It's uh, very interesting and challenging, and we look forward to the uh, to the time that we can schedule you to come and teach this course for us here in Birmingham. Uh, but thank you now for giving us this little introduction and little teaser for uh, on this material.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.